and all who've led us in worship so far. Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. This is a digression in the Apostle Paul's argument, but it's a very beautiful, redemptive digression, and I'm so glad he put it here. I needed to study these words this week, and I believe God has great encouragement for us in these words. So let's read Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 1 through verse 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Thanks be to God for his living word. The older I get, the more I'm thinking about what it's going to take to finish well. I used to think that I'd come to a point in my life where I'd feel really victorious as a Christian. Like, I've got this. And I'd hear other Christians who are older than I say things like, the older I get, the more aware I become of my own sinfulness. And I'd wonder, are they just kind of exaggerating? Are they being too hard on themselves? And now I know that they weren't. The older I get, the more I'm aware of my vulnerability, my weakness, my sin, my need for God's grace. And I look for examples of people who finish well. A couple of weeks ago, I was privileged to attend a celebration for the man who was my youth pastor when I was in junior high, Pastor Dan Remus. I like youth pastors named Pastor Dan. And I met this Pastor Dan in 1982 when I was going into seventh grade. And he planned a youth group activity to welcome all the new junior hires into the youth group. And he sent a letter home to the parents describing this activity. It was supposed to be a surprise, 
but my mom left the letter sitting out on the kitchen table. And when I read it, I was very shy at the time. I, I didn't know anyone in this church youth group. We were kind of new to this large church. And I protested with all my might. I said, Mom, there's no way I'm going to this youth group activity. And my mom, who is a nice lady, said, oh, yes, you are. I'm forcing you to go to this youth group activity. So when the time arrived for the school bus to come and to pick us up, I was hiding up in my room and out came Pastor Dan in a gorilla uniform. And my mom literally let him come into our house and go up into my bedroom and pick me up and carry me onto this school bus. And I was sweating and I was angry that I was going to this event. But I'm so glad that my mom made me go because Pastor Dan became the first person in my life who made me want to become a pastor. He used to pick us up before junior high school and uh, bring us out for donuts and study the Bible with us. And on days when we couldn't be with him in person to study the Bible, he made cassette tapes with Bible readings and words of encouragement that we could listen to on our way into the public school so we could be alive for Jesus. He taught us how to tell other people about Jesus, and he took us to the mall and, and shared the, showed us how to share the gospel with people our age. He impacted me so much that when it was time for Kate and I to be married uh, a decade later, we asked him to be the officiant in our wedding ceremony. And then he became the pastor who was there when my grandparents died. And then when my wife found out she had cancer many years later, he called me on the phone and prayed with me. And uh, when she was in surgery in Chicago, he called again and, and prayed during that surgery. And so it was a real joy for me to, to go to this celebration two weeks ago because Pastor Dan finished 41 years of ministry in the same church. He had been a youth pastor, an associate pastor, a senior pastor, a co-pastor, and a pastor for senior adults, all in the same church, 41 years. And as I greeted him in the, in the foyer of that church two weeks ago, what stood out to me was he had the same infectious joy and enthusiasm for Jesus and love for people that made me want to be like him 40 years ago. It was still there, that joy, that love. He said at his retirement, I'm not stepping out of the game. I'm just heading into the fourth quarter. And I told him, I think I'm about a quarter behind you, and I'm watching you. I want to follow in your steps. I want to finish well. So here's my question. How? How do we keep our joy in gospel ministry? And I'm not just talking about pastors here. I'm talking about all of us. What is the Christian life about? What is the purpose of our redemption? God has redeemed us so that we can help everyone around us take the next step toward Jesus Christ. That's the mission statement of our church, ministry is about bringing people to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what our Christian life is supposed to be about, as long as God gives us breath. And, and my question today is, how do we stay in the game? How do we keep our joy and our passion 
and our love? How do we keep it from not growing lukewarm? How do we keep from just checking out and becoming cynical and bitter? The Apostle Paul, he wants us to be joyful in ministry no matter how hard it gets. And notice how hard it is for him right now. Did you see what he said about himself in verse 1? He's a prisoner when he's writing these let this letter. <laughs> and, and this is the first time in the book of Ephesians that Paul has mentioned this very notable fact. He hasn't told us. He spent two chapters just exulting in the magnificence of God's grace. And he has never once said... He's a prisoner, but now he tells us in verse 1, and it's probably been several years since he was under house arrest in Rome. He's got a soldier watching his every move. At any moment, he could be dragged off to Caesar to be executed. This is the life he's living right now. And we thought it was hard to be under stay-at-home orders under COVID for a couple months. Paul has been in prison now for years. Yet Paul doesn't view himself as a victim. He's not discouraged at all. In fact, notice how he calls himself in verse 1. What does he say? The prisoner of Caesar, right? No. I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Of course, the Roman emperor is the one who's responsible for his imprisonment. He's culpable but Paul looks beyond human causes. He's lifting, lifting his eyes to King Jesus, who he said in chapter 1 reigns far above every rule and authority and every name that is given and title that is given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's saying, Jesus, you're reigning over all of this. And so I am your prisoner, and I'm going to serve you for the sake of others. I am here for the sake of the Gentiles. He's pouring out his life as a servant of Christ for the sake of others. And that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about ministry. It's about bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. And prison has not discouraged Paul in his ministry. And he doesn't want anyone else to be discouraged about his condition either. So he breaks off into this digression. You notice the dash at the end of verse 1. He was going to get down on his knees and pray. But first, he's like, wait a minute. i got to tell you about why I have so much joy in gospel ministry. And here's why I'm going to tell you about the joy I have in gospel ministry. It's so that, verse 13, you will not be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf. Because they're for your glory. In other words, what I'm suffering is causing the gospel to advance to more and more people like you. And you are experiencing Christ because I'm here in prison. So I'm not discouraged, and I don't want you to be discouraged either. Paul wants us to tap into the joy that he has. So he gives us this divinely inspired digression that's describing the joy he has in gospel ministry so that we also can be joyful in our ministry no matter what we're going through. So I'm so grateful for this rabbit trail of the Apostle Paul. Here's my main point this morning. We can stay joyful in gospel ministry no matter how hard our life gets. And I'm going to give you three reasons why from this text. We can stay joyful in gospel ministry no matter how hard life gets because, number one, the Spirit has revealed a glorious mystery to us. 
That word mystery is the main word in this passage, and I love mysteries. I read all the Hardy Boys books when I was a kid. Kate and I have watched all of Foyle's War, all of the Dr. Blake mystery series, and a whole lot more. We love to try to figure out who done it. Do you share my, my love for mysteries? Anyone else here have that same passion? What is it that gets us into mysteries so much? For me, it's the suspense. It's the intrigue. It's, it's watching these brilliant minds as they trace down clues and, and figure out what happened. But in the Bible, a mystery is not like that. In the Bible, a mystery is not something hidden that we have to discover. A mystery is something God has revealed that we could have never figured out on our own. So kids, on your worksheet this morning, you have the question, what is a mystery in the Bible? Or what's different about a mystery in the Bible? And you can write this down. A mystery is something God makes known that we couldn't figure out. Something God makes known that we couldn't figure out. And the reason we could never have discovered it on our own is because it's counterintuitive. It goes against our expectations. Notice whenever Paul uses this word mystery, it's joined with words like grace and gospel. These words go together in Paul's mind. So Paul says, look at verse 2. You have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. And that word administration means the strategy or the, the stewardship that God entrusted to me. He's entrusted the saving message of God's grace that he wants Paul to share with all the non-Jewish nations. And this message is something counterintuitive. It goes against what anyone would have ever guessed. It had to be revealed to Paul, we see in verse 3. He couldn't have figured it out. It comes through divine revelation, not human Invention. And in verse 4, we, we see that this mystery is about Christ, the Messiah. It centers on who the Messiah is and what the Messiah has accomplished. So, what is this counterintuitive mystery that we see in verse 5 was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets? By the Spirit. What is this mystery? It's not that God is going to include the Gentiles, the non Jews, in his plans to bring his blessing to the nations. That's not really a mystery. That was revealed way back in the, in the book of Genesis to Abraham, that, that God was going to use him to bring his blessing to the nations. And throughout the Old Testament, we, we see it programmed into the code of the Old Testament that God is going to somehow bless the nations. So that, that's not really what the mystery is. What the mystery is, is how is God going to do that? None of the prophets could figure out how God was going to accomplish this great plan to bring salvation to the nations. Here's what many Jewish people would have assumed. If a pagan person from another nation wanted to experience God's blessing, they would say, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the law. You've got to do the sacrifices. That's how you'll experience God's blessing. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not you obey God, you live for God, and therefore God will accept you. 
No, the gospel is Jesus obeyed God in our place. Jesus went to the cross and was sacrificed for our sins. And when we believe in Jesus, we are saved. We are accepted by God. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we want to live a life that's pleasing to him. So what's this mystery that God has revealed? Well, it's the good news that God's gathering people from all around the world, no matter how moral, no matter how wicked they've been, whether they're a Jew or whether they're an Uzbek or whether they're a Uyghur or an Icelandic person or from the Rajang people of Sumatra or whether they're Hutus or Tutsis or Turks or Americans or Argentinians, all around the world, people can come to God on the same terms now through faith in Jesus Christ. It's all by grace. It's not by anything that we do. And when we do, look at what happens. Verse 6. I'm going to put this on the screen in the NIV because the NIV really gets this translation great. Look at what it says. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, Sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It's this idea of together that astonishes Paul. That, 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 that God is now making the Jews and the Gentiles one body who come to God not through obedience to the law, not through sacrifices, but surely through his grace that he's displayed in Jesus Christ and through faith in him. And when you look at verse 6, And see how God is bringing all these nations together to experience his promise, to be members of his body, to share in his inheritance. What I want you to realize is this is what the world is aching for. This is what the world longs for, to be united under a king who's able to bring us all together to live in peace and in love, to experience his righteousness and his joy. It's a world where under the reign of King Jesus, there's no more racism. There's no more poverty. There's no more broken promises. There's no irreconcilable differences in relationship. We're brought together now as one body under his righteous reign. And that's such good news for the world, that God is saving and gathering a people for himself from all around the world to be under the reign of King Jesus and to share in his blessings together. And Paul has so much joy in his ministry Because he knows that God is on the move. God is doing this. God is gathering the nations to himself. And Paul gets to play a vital role in it, even if he's in prison. So look at verse 7. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. That's why Paul is not losing his joy. He's amazed that he gets to be a servant of this gospel. He sees it's all by the gift of God's grace. And he sees that God is working by his power through his ministry. And if you belong to Jesus, what I want you to know this morning is that God has graciously worked by his power to give you a ministry too. 
that your life, that your ministry plays a vital role in God's plan to gather people to himself. And what we're doing every Sunday morning is we're trying to take a little bit deeper dive into this mystery of the gospel, to understand it, to probe into it just a little bit more, to understand it better, not so that we can keep it to ourselves, but so that we can go into the world and share it with others this week so we can be equipped. So don't lose heart because God has revealed this glorious mystery to us. We can stay joyful in gospel ministry when we recognize the glory of what God has revealed. And then secondly, we can stay joyful in gospel ministry because Christ has graced us with his riches to proclaim. Now, in case we didn't get it in verse 2, where he says that God gave an administration of his grace to Paul to share with others, or in case we didn't get in verse 7, where Paul says that this ministry of being a servant of the gospel is the gift of God's grace, he says it one more time in verse 8. Look at what he says. This grace was given to me. Now, what is this grace that Paul is talking about here? Paul Paul is not talking about his salvation here, per se. Obviously, Paul sees his salvation as a massive gift of God's grace, but Paul's talking about his ministry here. He's saying not only my salvation, but the ministry I have. It's a gift of God's grace. Do you realize the fact that we can share Christ with other people, that's a gift of God's grace? We don't deserve to be able to be spokesmen of the king of kings of the universe. We don't deserve to be able to share Christ with other people. It's a gift that we get to do this. And if we viewed it that way, maybe we would see evangelism less as a burden, less as a kind of guilty duty, and more of a delight more of a privilege, more of a joy. It's the gift of God's grace that we get to share Jesus with other people. And it's a gift of God's grace because we are sinners whom God has made saints. Paul sees himself in verse 8. He says, I'm the least of all the saints. Think about that. The Apostle Paul calls himself the least of all the saints. And it's not just hyperbole. His, word, his name, Paulos, it actually literally means little. And Paul's playing on his name here, and he's saying, I'm the littlest and I'm the leastest of all the saints. I don't deserve this. He never forgot. I was once a blasphemer. I persecuted the church of God. And now look at me. I get to share the gospel with the nations. And God's doing that even though I'm in prison through me. So I'm not going to lose my joy. I'm not going to be discouraged. This is grace that I get to be in this ministry. This deep humility that Paul has produces a bold authority. He wants to proclaim this gospel to the nations. Look at how he describes the message of sublime beauty that he gets to proclaim. He, he, look at what he says at the end of verse 8. I get to proclaim to the Gentiles, I love this phrase, the incalculable riches of Christ. If you could take one phrase 
and pray that that would describe the ministry of New Covenant Bible Church. Take that. Pray that into existence more and more for our church, that we would be all about proclaiming the incalculable riches of Christ. It doesn't get any better than this. Remember, gospel ministry is about the proclamation of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you never to separate the work of Christ from the person of Christ. Don't don't make the gospel into just something that God accomplished for us on the cross that we get the, the benefits of. What Jesus did could not save us apart from who Jesus is. It's who Jesus is that makes the work he did so powerful for our salvation. So we proclaim him in all his riches, riches that are beyond calculation. What does this word incalculable mean? It means if you took a calculator, there wouldn't be enough digits on the screen to add up all the riches that are in Christ Jesus. If you took a sounding depth and tried to fathom the ocean, you couldn't get to the bottom of all these riches that are in Christ. If you took a telescope and you tried to see the galaxy of Christ's riches, you'd only get to the outskirts of his ways. You could not get so far as to see all the riches that are in Jesus. The riches of Christ are untraceable. They are unfathomable. They are inexhaustible. They are unlimited. They are boundless. They are infinite. They are incalculable. The wealth of our King Jesus that he lavishes on us from his bounty, it includes everything that Paul has been praising God for in this letter. Things like how he has chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. He's predestined us in love to be adopted as his children. He's forgiven us all our trespasses through his blood. He's raised us from the dead and he's exalted us at his right hand in all power and authority. And he has taken us who were once aliens and strangers, who were outcasts, and he's made us members of his kingdom. He's made us children in his household. He's made us a holy temple in which the spirit dwells. All of these things, how many times does Paul say it? They're in him, in him, in him, in him. The incalculable riches of Christ And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Eternal days will seem far too short to sing the praises of Christ and his incalculable riches. But this is what we get to do with whatever days remain for us on earth. We get to tell about the wealth of our king the riches of the one who saved us. We get to do verse 9 because Paul has done this for us. The apostles have done this for us. Now we, taking their apostolic message, what do we get to do? We get to shed light. Look at verse 9. We get to shed light for all about how the God who created all things is now reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. We're just light shedders, shedding light for all on this great gospel. It doesn't matter if you're in a prison cell or if you're in a hospital room or if you're in a job that feels like a dead end to your career. If you are in Christ, you are a rich person. 
you are so rich. And Jesus has made you rich so that you can share those riches with whoever is willing to receive them. I was struck this week by the testimony of a young man named Zach. Zach was a first-year student at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. And in 2018, tragedy struck his life. And in the, the school newsletter for that year, every student was asked to share in 50 words or less how the people could be praying for them. I want you to see what Zach wrote in that newsletter. He said this, I have been blessed with a brain tumor which will most likely take my life. Please be praying that I use this gift for the glory of God in everything that I do until I go to meet Jesus. I looked at his picture, saw how young his face was. But here's a guy who gets the incalculable riches of Christ. He's starting to see. And if we will stay amazed at the incalculable riches of Christ, and if we will continue to roam the rooms of our king's castle and just probe into all the riches that he has and that he is for us, and if we will stay humbled by how generously he has lavished his riches on us, then we will have all that we need to stay joyful in gospel ministry as long as he gives us breath. Because that's what it's all about. It's about shedding light for all people on the riches that our Savior has lavished on us so that we can share those riches with others. So we can stay joyful in gospel ministry no matter how hard life gets because the Spirit's revealed a glorious mystery to us, because Christ has graced us with his riches to proclaim. And finally, one more reason, we can stay joyful in gospel ministry no matter how hard life gets. It's because the Father is displaying his brilliant wisdom through the church. Now look at verse 10. This is one of the most breathtaking, staggering verses about the church in all of Scripture. Let's just read it. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Whoa. When Paul says this word that God's wisdom is multifaceted or manifold, it's the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for Joseph's coat of many colors. So God's got this multicolored, brilliant wisdom that he wants to display to the universe. God's wisdom is resplendent. And when God wants to show off his wisdom to the world and to the universe, he says, look at the church. They're exhibit A of my wisdom. 
look at not just what they say. It's not just about what we proclaim that proclaims, that shows off the wisdom of God. It's who we are and how we live together as one people, united people from every tribe and every language and every nation, and how now we've been brought together and we're loving one another and we're serving together and we're, we're ministering Jesus together to a watching world as we stand under the shadow of his cross and we bask in his riches. We love one another and as the world sees that, God says, you're looking at my wisdom because no one else could bring these people together. No one else could bring healing to this world that has fallen apart through sin. Everything's torn apart and God says, I'm bringing it back together and you can look at the church and get a picture of what I'm doing. And Paul wants us to know that even if we feel very small and even if we feel insignificant as a church, he says there's a vast audience that's watching what's going on here. We've got a big audience. And they're showing, they're seeing God's wisdom. There are rulers, there are authorities in unseen heavenly realms who are very interested in what's going on here in the church. They're angels. Some of them are holy angels. Some of them are fallen, demonic angels. Some of them are watching with holy astonishment at what God is doing in his church. Others, the demons, are watching with dreadful dismay as God is working his wisdom out. Just when they thought they won the biggest battle and killed Jesus on the cross, God says, oh, wow, watch what I am going to do. And through that cross, he takes away the hostility and makes those who are at odds with one another and couldn't, couldn't love one another. He brings us together. He makes us one. And he says, do you see my wisdom? Do you see what I'm doing? One of the great biblical scholars said this about Ephesians 3.10. F.F. Bruce says, the church thus appears to be God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. Hmm. God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. It's kind of like when you see a movie trailer, a preview of coming attractions. What God is saying to the angelic and demonic authorities in the unseen realm is, do you want to know where I'm taking this world? Look at what I'm doing in the church and you'll see. All the things that have fallen apart are being healed and they're coming together. All the hostile elements of the creation, they're being unified. And the church, we get to show the world a taste of what the new creation is going to be like. The angels, the demons are watching. Let, let me ask you this. Can you be a good Christian? Can you be a Christian and not go to church? Some people ask that question. I want to say that's like a husband foolishly asking his wife, can I be married to you and not come home at night? It's just incongruent. It's unthinkable. But 81% of Americans say to pollsters, you can be a good Christian and not be part of a church. And Paul listens to those people answer that poll, and Paul just says, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. That's unthinkable. 
Do you see what God's doing in his church? Do you see how he's carrying out his plan through his church? Listen, Paul knew all about the problems that churches have. He addresses all these problems head on in his letters, but he's not cynical. He's not checking out of the church. He's saying there's no way this world is going to understand the brilliance of God's wisdom in the gospel apart from the living testimony of local churches. So don't lose heart. Don't check out. Don't become cynical about doing gospel ministry with the church in partnership with believers. Don't give up on the body of Christ or lose your joy in gospel ministry because if you're engaged in gospel ministry with a local church, you're a part of what God views as the greatest hope of the world. This is how he's putting his wisdom on display. So no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much you suffer, God has ministry for you to do as part of his body here on earth. Let me tell you a story. Johnny Erickson Tata, you probably know her story, how she was 18, had a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. God has used her mightily in that wheelchair. You probably don't know about who was in the hospital with her. There were several others One of them was a 17-year-old girl named Denise. And Denise woke up one morning as a cheerleader, very popular in her high school. And she started going up the stairs at school, and she stumbled and realized her knees and her ankles felt very weak. She ended up going home that day, and she took a nap. And when she woke up from the nap... She was paralyzed from the waist down. A few days later, she was paralyzed from the neck down. And then her arms stopped working. And then in a few months, she was totally blind. And she was diagnosed with a rare progressive form of MS. And when she was in the hospital room in Baltimore with Johnny Erickson, Denise's mom would come every night. She was the only one who visited Denise. And she would read the Bible to Denise, and she would pray with Denise. And this went on month after month. And you know that Johnny was very discouraged being in a wheelchair. But through the grace of God, God was starting to show Johnny that that she could have a ministry for God from that wheelchair, that she could still speak of God to others, that her life was not a waste But as Johnny was starting to see that she in a wheelchair could have a ministry for God, she'd look over at Denise and she would be filled with despair because she'd say, no one can see her. No one can hear her. She can't even talk. All she's doing is dying in that wheelchair. And as Johnny started sharing her disillusionment over Denise's condition with her other friends in that hospital, one of the friends said, hey, wait a minute. And she opened up her Bible to Ephesians 3, verse 10. And she said, you know what? There are angels and there are demons who are watching what's happening in Denise's life. And when Denise died a few years later, Johnny Erickson sent a note to her mother. And here's the basic message she said. I am sure the angels and demons stood amazed 
as they watch the uncomplaining patience of your daughter. You see, even when you can't speak and you can't move and you can't have an impact on any human life, your faith in Jesus has a ministry to an audience that's far greater than your eyes can see. So don't lose heart. Tim Keller puts it like this. What if I told you tomorrow, for one day, there was a special camera that's going to put everything you said, everything you did, everything you thought on television, and it's going to be beamed around the world, and probably a billion people will see it. Would that make any difference as to how you lived? And I'm guessing we'd all say, oh, yeah. I'd be on my best behavior if I knew that many people were going to see. And Tim Keller says this, don't you see? You are already on camera. Don't you realize even if nobody here on earth sees, there are visible and invisible worlds. And you're already there. You're already on. Everything you do is seen by billions of beings. They're looking at God's wisdom. Paul understood this. He believed this. And so he had joy in his ministry, even from prison. And Paul knew there's one thing that prison could not take away from him, and that was what Jesus had won for him on the cross. And so he says, even though I'm here in prison, look at verse 12, In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Even though I'm in prison, I'm still seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And in Christ and through faith in him, I can still approach God with freedom and with confidence. And so can you and so can I if we're in Christ. So no matter how hard life gets, we have every reason not to be discouraged. We have every reason to press on with joy in the ministry of the gospel. Even when it seems like nothing's happening and no one's watching, God is at work displaying his wisdom through his church and through you. So when you're discouraged, draw near to God. Approach him with freedom, with confidence through faith in Jesus. And then press on with joy in making Christ known to other people and helping everyone take the next step toward Christ. That's what we're about. Let's pray.